0: Thank you Azure for that ministry and music I invite you to uh, turn your Bibles with me to this morning's text which is 2nd Samuel chapter 21 verses 1 through 14 and I'd like to begin by reading the text 2nd Samuel chapter 21 reading at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement for you, you, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us, and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and redeemed Plan to destroy us, so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons to be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholahite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest." Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took the sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughters of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went out, took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul and Geboah. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zila in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land." As we enter into this text, we acknowledge that unfortunately, life is filled with injustices. We can see them all around us, and we may ask the question, where is God in all of these injustices? Why does he allow them to take place? Why doesn't God intervene? This morning, we want to see that life's justices Do not go unnoticed by God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, I referred to this verse a few Sundays ago. It reads, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Don't be surprised when you see injustice, when you see oppression when you see people that are treating others harshly and violating the law of God, don't be surprised. It's all around us. Then it goes on to say, for the high official is watched by a higher, and they are yet higher ones over them. That there are people in authority that have responsibility for those that are under them. And there are people of higher authority still over lesser authorities. And then the ultimate Authority is God, of course, of whom all mankind is responsible. So leaders, no matter how powerful they are, are still accountable to God. And we see that in the passage that is before us. Now, as we enter into this passage, I'd like to note that there are a number of difficult issues that have to be faced in contemplating the events of 2 Samuel chapter 21, 1 to 14. And there are numerous different explanations for the text that we're about to consider. This is probably one of the most uh, difficult uh, passages in Scripture to find unanimity of thought concerning. But the different explanations fall basically in two different camps are two different approaches. The first approach is to seek to remove God from the responsibility of what's taking place in this chapter. David and the Gibeonites are seen as acting contrary to the will of God in uh, many people's view. Then the second approach is to see God as a central figure of all that is taking place in this passage. And again, there are many that would hold to that view. I believe that the God-centered approach is the correct one. I would point out to you that the passage begins and ends with God. It begins with God in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. And the passage ends with God, verse 14. And notice the last sentence of verse 14. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. I follow the reasoning of Dale Ralph Davis and his commentary that the purpose of these closing chapters, for, uh, chapters 21 through 24 in the book of 2 Samuel, is to make us more aware of God's involvement and in the oversight of the Davidic kingdom and the events of this world. So my theme this morning is that we are to learn about God's oversight of David's kingdom. Learning about God's oversight of David's kingdom. The first thing we want to note is as the narrative opens, David encounters a problem in his kingdom. God is going to reveal a great injustice to David. You notice with me in verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David. When, during the reign of David, this famine took place, we do not know. I would just point out to you at this point that chapters 21 to 24 in 2 Samuel are not in chronological order. Uh, They vary during different times in the kingdom of David. I will be pointing that out when we get to the particular chapters Uh, I have so much this morning that uh, I just don't have time to to go through that with you this morning. But uh, they occur during different periods of time of David's kingdom. They are not in chronological order, but they are in a thematic order. And I will demonstrate that again as time goes on. What's important to keep in mind is that the famine occurs during the reign of David. This famine was a lengthy famine, for tells us in verse 1 that it lasted for three years. The famine was a continuous famine. There was no let up. For again it tells in verse 1 that it was year after year. And so David asked God for deliverance from the famine. Again in verse 1. And David sought the face of the Lord. When it says that David sought the face of the Lord, it means that he was not asking about the cause of the famine. He wasn't asking why are we going through this famine, but rather he was asking for deliverance. He wanted this famine to be removed, and uh, we can see that by the end of verse 14 where it says, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So the plea for the land is what David is making when he says that he is seeking the face of the Lord. He wants this famine to be be removed. But God reveals to David that the famine was due to a spiritual problem, a great injustice that had occurred in the time of Saul. The end of verse 1, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Saul had committed a great sin by putting the Gibeonites to death the exact incident is not referred to at all in the scriptures. It's not recorded anywhere. Uh, so we don't know when this event occurred, and we don't know the, all the circumstances that are associated with it. But the important thing for us to realize is, though we are not aware, though we cannot even turn to a passage that describes this slaughter of the Ibionites, God is very much aware of it. What goes unnoticed by men does not go unnoticed by God. And we can think that God turns a blind eye to the events and circumstances of this world, but he doesn't, he doesn't. There is nothing that is done in darkness. All is light unto God. He is aware of all events, all circumstances, all motivations, all actions. It's important to keep in mind that this famine was not the consequence of David's actions, but Saul's. Nonetheless, it was affecting the kingdom in David's time, which again teaches us some important lessons. First, sometimes leaders have to deal with the consequences of the injustices of those that have come before them. Many, many times, leaders have to deal with consequences of actions that have taken place not under their regime, not under their time, but before them. They inherit them, if you will. And also it teaches us that sometimes God's justice is delayed. We can ask, why didn't God deal with this during Saul's lifetime and during the time in which Saul was king? And we really don't have a a good answer to that. We don't know why, but he didn't. But he didn't. But because he didn't doesn't mean that God wasn't unaware, that God wasn't condemning, and that God wasn't going to hold Saul and others accountable for what he had done. So let's look at the background to David's interaction with the Gibeonites concerning Saul and justice to the Gibeonites. David is going to have to address the Gibeonites in verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, we the readers are given the pertinent facts of Saul's injustice. This is important background information for us. And I sent out an email asking you to, to read Joshua chapter 9, and let me highlight some of the things that are found in this verse that that come out of the events in Joshua chapter 9. First, it's important for us to realize that the Gibeonites did not belong to the tribes of Israel, verse 2. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The Amorites were a people group that inhabited the land before the Israelites did, The Israelites conquered the land, uh, taking it from the Amorites, and the Amorites were to be destroyed. However, the Gibeonites had heard of all that God had done for the nation of Israel, and the Gibeonites believed in the power of God and believed that God's will was going to be accomplished, so they tricked the Israelites into making a covenant with them so that they would not be destroyed but be spared from death. If you notice in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 2, this is referred to when it states So the king called the Gibeonites, spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel but a remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, they had made an oath to spare. The Gibeonites. Now let me give you some background from Joshua chapter 9. Starting in Joshua chapter 9 verse 3 it reads as follows. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out from torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So they deceived the Israelites by taking all of these uh, goods that made it look as though they had traveled a great distance when in actuality they were very close by. So in Joshua chapter 9 verse 15 it says Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Well later the Israelites discover that they were tricked but they still kept the covenant they had made with the Gibeonites. When they came upon the land where the Gibeonites actually lived it tells us in Joshua chapter 9 verse 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. The Israelites recognized that they could not break the covenant without angering God. For it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 21 verse 2 that they had sworn to spare them. They had sworn to spare them. Listen to the account from Joshua. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Not only did the Israelites let them live, but they went on to protect the Gibeonites from their enemies and those that would seek to take their life. So this covenant was made, and it was not to be broken lest they would experience the wrath of God. Saul broke the covenant with the Gibeonites, and killed them. That is found in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 2. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down, uh, thus incurring the wrath of God. Next, we find the motivation for Saul's actions. He wanted to do what was best for the nation. Notice the motivation that's Cited in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and of verse 2. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to, uh, excuse me, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down. And here's the motivation in his zeal for the people of Israel. The irony should not be lost on us. What motivated Saul's desire to destroy the Gibeonites is he wanted what was best for the nation of Israel. Uh, He thought that this was a good thing to be wiping out the Gibeonites, that this would actually uh, advance the cause of Israel. What Saul intends to be a benefit, however, actually turns out to be a detriment and a harm to the nation. Again, we should not lose sight of the irony For there have been many, many atrocities committed down through the centuries and still today out of nationalistic zeal where leaders believe that they are doing what is best for their particular nation, for their particular people by engaging in atrocities against others. However we find out that the best thing that you can do for your people is to be following God's word and keeping his demands. That is always what is in the best interest of the people under whom uh, we exercise authority. As we move on with the text, David's conversation with the Dibunites, how was Saul injustice going to be addressed? David begins with a question to the Gibeonites. How can these matters be made right? How can these matters be made right? How can the injustice of Saul slaughtering so many Gibeonites be dealt with? Well, first, David wants to make things right between the Gibeonites and the Israelites. And so in verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? What shall I do for you? How can I address this grievance? But secondly, David wants to make things right with God as well. It's not just about the Gibeonites. It's about God. It's about their oath. It's their responsibility before God. For it tells us in the end of verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And then here's the second thought, and how shall I make atonement? How shall I make atonement? The word atonement always has a religious connotation to it. It has the aspect of expiation of sin and its consequences. Uh, how can I make this right before you, and how can I make this right before God? What shall I do about this great injustice that's taken place? David realizes that in making things right with the Gibeonites and God, that that indeed will bring a blessing to his own people and to the land. It's actually in their interest, that is Israel's interest, to make this right. For he says in the end of verse 3, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. That you can be a blessing to us. Where Saul saw the Gibeonites as being to the adverse effect upon Israel, David realizes that in treating them justly and in obeying God, that that will be a blessing to the nation. And it flows out of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, although I don't have time to expound that this morning. But remember that it was God himself that had said in the end of verse 1, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So how is that injustice going to be addressed? Well, the Gibeonites respond in a manner that is consistent with the law of God. They respond in a manner that's consistent with the law of God. For they say, first of all, this is not about money. This is not about money. Look at verse 4. The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. This statement is in keeping with God's law as it's revealed in numbers chapter 35. So let me just read that to you. Numbers chapter 35 says this. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not accept you ex- you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to the city of refuge, that he may return to dwell on the land before his death or the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and the atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who has shed it. The only way to get rid of this blood guilt is through death. Leviticus 24-22 says, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So what they say is in keeping with the law of God. Secondly, the Gibeonites reply that it is not their place to exercise judgment over the Israelites. For if you notice in verse 4, it goes on to say, well, I'll read verse 4 in context. The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. And here's the second statement. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. They realized that they didn't have that kind of authority. They acknowledged before David it would be not right for them to be taking the life of an Israelite. That wasn't in their prerogative. That wasn't in their domain. Uh, that wouldn't be justice. That that would not be correct. Uh, They don't have that kind of authority. So David asks the question. And in this asking of the question, David is asking what should he do as king over Israel? For he is the one who must enforce justice at this point. For notice it says... Again in verse 4, the Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? So David is assuming the responsibility. The uh, response of the Gibeonites was actually a very measured response. It was not vindictive, but It, again, was a measured response. And I say that carefully, but why was it a measured response? Well, first, it appears that Saul sought to wipe out all the Gibeonites. For notice in verse 5 a description of the activity of Saul. First, what Saul had done. They said to the king, the man who consumed us, that that being consumed speaks of their death which is referred to in verse 1. He put the Gibeonites to death. Secondly, what Saul intended to do. In verse 5, it says he planned to destroy us. And then thirdly, what Saul had hoped to accomplish, and that was to rid Israel of all the Gibeonites. Uh, He wanted to purify the land and get rid of them all. For notice at the end of verse 5, it says that we should have no place at all in the territory of Israel. He didn't want a Gibeonite left in the nation. Many Gibeonites must have died. This must have been a great purging of these peoples. And it tells us at the end of verse 1, because he put the Gibeonites, plural, to death. Despite the fact that many Gibeonites must have died and Saul was seeking to destroy them all, The Gibeonites did not seek to wipe out all of Saul's descendants. Instead, they say in verse 6 let seven of his sons be given to us. I think it's important for us to realize that the Gibeonites were not seeking vengeance, but rather the Lord's justice. They understood that what they were acting and what they were seeking was under the Lord's authority. Notice verse 6 let seven of the sons be given to us so we may hang them before the Lord. Before the Lord. Before the Lord has the connotation with God in view, with a consideration of what God requires. The place of the execution was to be Saul's hometown of Gibeah. Verse 6. Let us hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. Uh, Gibeah is mentioned numerous times in the scripture as Saul's hometown. Uh, I'll give you just one, 1 Samuel 10, 26. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. So he's, he's going to be, uh, uh, so uh, this execution is going to take place at Gibeah. Most likely uh, is not only the uh, city in which Saul had lived, but it was also the place where these atrocities would have occurred, Uh, at least where the most atrocities would have been occurred. For Gibeah was a town of Gibeonites. It was their area of density. It was the place of the greatest population of Gibeonites. And so it's at that place where these atrocities had taken place, that these executions were to take place. There was a recognition of the incongruity of Saul's offense with his calling. As God's servant, um, Saul should not have broken the covenant And should not have committed this atrocity. For notice in verse 6, it says, Let seven of the sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord to give you Saul. And then we have this apposition for Saul that he's the chosen of the Lord. He's the chosen of the Lord. Saul's position made him all the more culpable. Saul's actions were not only a reflection upon the nation, But they were a reflection upon God himself. Saul was God's chosen one. It was his responsibility to be administering with equity and justice. It was his responsibility to keep the law, not break the law. He used to be a reflection of a holy and righteous God, and he failed miserably in this instance, as he did in many other instances as well. So the king gave the Gibeonites the authority to carry out the death penalty in verse 6. And the king said, I will give them. I will give them. Next we have a very interesting aside, but it's, it's very important. In contrast to Saul, who had acted unjustly in breaking the covenant with the Gibeonites, we have David, who acted justly by keeping the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. The contrast is very significant. We're to see how one broke the covenant and how David, in contrast, keeps the covenant. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. David had made a covenant with Jonathan, for it says in verse 7, Because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, that's between David and Jonathan, David knew that the Lord would hold him accountable if he broke that covenant, for it was an oath of the Lord. Therefore David kept the covenant that he had made with Jonathan to spare Jonathan's children. Verse 7, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. So we have one covenant that's broken, another covenant that is kept. David is seeking to act justly at this point. He's seeking to do what is right. He's walking a tight and narrow and difficult road. So David turns seven of Saul's descendants over to the Gibeonites to carry out an execution, verse 8. The king took two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armonia and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Berzillai, the Maholahite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So we have to ask the difficult question, what are we to think about this? Was this the right thing to do? And it's at this point the commentators love to raise all kinds of difficult and trying questions. Uh, The most poignant one is why should these seven die for what Saul has done? And you get into a a lot of theological discourse. And let me just say to you, I think at the end that there's not a satisfactory answer to that. As I have tried to work through many different things and we could look at a number of passages of scripture, but uh, I don't think it would satisfy us that uh, I have a good answer to that question. But rather, I I put this to you, and that is that we have to say at this point that there's much that we don't know that we'd like to know. We know why Mephibosheth is spared. It tells us that. Because of the covenant that uh, David had made with Jonathan. But it doesn't tell us why these seven were chosen. But the fact that it doesn't tell us why doesn't mean there isn't a good reason. It doesn't mean that there isn't something here that, that we don't know that We'd like to know. What we need to keep in mind is that, that David is seeking justice at this point. And we're not really in a place to pass judgment on, on uh, that judgment that is taking place, but, but rather to acknowledge that justice is being sought. And uh, what do we learn from that? Well, first of all, this was not vigilantism. As we saw in Absalom's killing of Amnon, I hope that you can remember that event where uh, Amnon had raped Tamar, and Absalom was outraged by it and was seething over it, was angered, and for three years that festered, and then he took matters in his own hands, and uh, and uh, killed. Uh, Amnon, and and I referred to that as vigilantism, of taking matters in your own hands. This is not that. This is not that at all. This was not the Gibeonites taking matters in their own hands. It was motivated by justice under the authority of the king. For if you notice in verse 6, it says the king took the two sons of Rizba, And words really matter in the scripture. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. That means that just not the thoughts of scripture are inspired, but the very words themselves. That's why we take so much time at at picking the text apart, because every single word matters. And here the reference is to the king. Often David is the name that's used, but it's the king who does this. The king is the one who has responsibility for justice and authority in the nation. It's the king who must deal with injustice. It's the king who must mete out consequences uh, to wrongdoing. That's his role. The king is to minister equity and justice. So the king took the two sons of Rizba, verse 9, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. So ultimately this is David's decision. This is David's authority. This is David acting as king over Israel. So the action was not motivated by revenge, for it was not even initiated by the Gibeonites. They did not approach David. David approached them. David summoned them. David talked to them. David said to them, what shall I do? This wasn't them lodging a grievance. This was David acting out of information that he was given by God. The action was not motivated by revenge, but justice, for they were seeking to fulfill God's law. Again, it says that they were hanged, them on the mountain, before the Lord. That is, they were seeking uh, God's, uh, they had God in view. Next, the action was not motivated by by justice, not by revenge, for David took no pleasure in all that had taken place. This was not motivated by hatred of Saul and his descendants as Absalom's killing of Amnon was motivated by hatred and revenge. There is no animosity that is expressed in this. This isn't a matter of revenge. Uh, We see the love that Rizbah had for her sons in verse 10. Then Rizbah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Uh, You can see this compassion and this concern for Rizba for her her sons, you can understand her grief and wanting to honor their their bodies and their death by protecting them from animals and other birds feeding upon their dead carcasses. And as you step back, you have to realize that this is an incredibly tragic passage, as sin is tragic. I mean, there's, there's no winner here in this whole account. I mean, it's, it's sad when you think about the Gibeonites and so many of them being slaughtered, murdered uh, by the king of, of Israel. You think about all the suffering that the Gibeonites had to spare. You, you think about Saul's descendants. And the taking of life. You you, you think about the extended family members. You think about David and having to deal with all of the fallout of this. And things for which he wasn't responsible for at all. But he's having to deal with it. And then you think of the nation and the famine. I mean, it's just filled with heartache. It's filled with heartache. There's no rejoicing in this passage. And I think that's important to keep in mind. David is moved by Rizbeth's grief and has compassion for her as well as wanting to give Saul and his family respectful burial. And I say this to the honor and glory of God. For Notice what the text says in verses 11 and 12. When David was told what Rizbeth, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshean, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul and Neboah. Now let me remind you of that story. We'd already seen it, but that's been months ago now. Originally, upon the death of Saul, when Saul died, the Philistines wanted to dishonor Saul and to dishonor God. So the Philistines, it tells us in verse I'm at 1 Samuel 31 now. The next day, that is the day after Saul's death, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gamboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall at Bathshean. So the Philistines wanted to dishonor Saul, and more importantly, they wanted to dishonor God. They wanted to give credit to their gods for the defeat of the Israelites and the death of Saul. So they actually put the armor in the temple to say, look, look, look at our victory over God. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead wanted to honor Saul and God. So it tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 11 through 13, But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh-Gilead and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and fasted seven days. So these bones were buried in Jabesh. So in our text, David goes one step further in seeking to honor Saul and his family as well as God. 2 Samuel 21.12 20, uh, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of the son of Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Chan, where the Philistines had hanged them, on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Geboah. So David now is going to give them a proper burial to the glory of God to recognize, to recognize that the defeat that had come was not because God was weak. But the defeat had come because God wanted David to reign over Israel. These deaths were a a tragedy, but it represented the importance of God's justice being satisfied. What does this teach us? Well, first of all, we should not rejoice in the downfall of others. What a tragedy it is when God's people fail. I hope when, when, when you hear of leaders, especially spiritual leaders, whether it be in the church, whether it be in the political realm, when you hear of the sin and the failure, that it grieves you. <laughs> that, that, that you take no joy and you delight in the fall of a brother. That's that's a cause not to rejoice, but to weep. What a tragedy it is when God's people fail. It's not only dishonoring to them, but it's dishonoring to God. There's also in this passage a recognition that people are a mixed bag. That there are things for which people should be praised, and there are things for which people should be rebuked and rejected. And we should always be able to make that distinction. We should not be so loyal to people that we gloss over their failures, nor should we be so antithetical to people that we don't acknowledge that which they do, which is right and good. But we be people that understand the difference between right and wrong, no matter who it is that performs it. that there are things that are praiseworthy in people's lives and things that are disgraceful. But once again, this is not about revenge. It's about justice. This was God's dealing with an atrocity that was affecting the whole nation. We are to see that the results of justice brings satisfaction. The judgment of sin is removed. You look at the end of verse 14. It says, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. The famine was over. The rain came. The blood guilt was dealt with. But here comes the real hard part. How do you you apply this passage? What are the takeaways? What should we learn from this in 2022? What do we do with it? And what is our responsibilities? Well, here is what I could best come up with that I'm seeking to be faithful to the text. The first is, leaders often act unjustly. Leaders often act unjustly. Second, those injustices can have devastating effects for a nation, for the people that are under them. Injustices have consequences. and They're never good. Thirdly, sometimes leaders have to deal with injustices that have come before them, before their regime, before their time, things that they have not done but generations before them have done. And so it makes life difficult in dealing with past injustices. And how do you make them right? How do you address them?
1: It's a huge, huge
0: challenge. But well, we learn what is incredibly important is, is, that is that God expects rulers to reign with justice, especially those that bear his name, those that he has chosen.
1: That's the primary responsibility. to Execute justice and righteousness in a land. When the justices do occur, They do not escape God's notice.
0: Be assured that any injustice that you see, God sees. Any injustice that you are aware of, God is aware of. And any injustice that you have no control over, God has complete control over. And God holds people accountable.
1: However, God's justice
0: often does not come immediately. It isn't always dealt with, and I would say to you, frequently is not dealt with immediately. In fact, many of the injustices that we see will never even be addressed in our lifetime or the lifetime of our descendants, but they come before the throne of God. There is a final judgment. There is a final dealing with mankind when they stand before God and give a full account. Saul does not escape. Saul will stand before God. Saul will give a complete account for his life and that which he has done. Ultimately, the time of judgment is future. Passages such as this teach us the reality of judgment. It teaches us that sin must be atoned for. Sin must be atoned for. And with that in mind, I'd like to leave with a positive thought. And that is, thank God
1: for Lord Jesus Christ Who is the atonement for sin?
0: Who bears the consequence of our guilt? Who himself, in his body, took upon our sin, our shame, our death, dying in our place on the cross, rising from the dead, completely satisfying the justice of God. So that we are free, so we are guiltless, so we can enter into his presence so that we can know the forgiveness of God. God's wrath can be satisfied. And it's satisfied, ultimately, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would plead with each and every one of you this morning to realize that the wages of sin is death. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth actually also reap. But there's atonement there's a way to make things right and the way to make things right is to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior
1: from all our sin all its consequences the wrath of God
0: and all that comes because of it God is the God of justice but he's also a God of mercy and grace. He provides a way for forgiveness. In that way is the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would give us confidence in you as we look around and we see the injustices of this world. But Lord, we know that you know and you are capable of dealing with injustice. You are capable of bringing about righteousness and holiness and one day the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come to this earth and reign in complete justice and righteousness and holiness there will be no injustice there will be no wrongdoing we long for that day but as we live in this fallen world now Lord give us confidence that you are a God of justice that you will do what is right that you hold people accountable and while we may rejoice that you hold others accountable, maybe we don't want to be accountable. But Lord, help us never to rejoice in the downfall of others, but to rejoice in forgiveness and restoration. And so, Lord, we thank you that in your mercy and your grace that you have given us an atonement, you have given us a way to satisfy your justice, your righteousness, your goodness, so that we do not experience your wrath and the guilt of our sin. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his death, for his resurrection, that through him we can experience the forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. And I ask, oh God, that if there's any here today who has never trusted in Christ, that today would be that day that their sin would be dealt with by the cross, and not when they stand before you in judgment, giving account for their lives. And so let me just pause and say Is there anyone here this morning that would like to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior? To know the forgiveness of sins that He provides, so that we would not experience death but have life and life everlasting. Is that your desire this morning, to trust in Christ, would you just quickly raise your hand so I can see it? Uh, I will acknowledge it. I won't embarrass you. I won't ask you to come forward to do anything like that. But I just want to, to be praying for you silently, anyone at all that would like to place their faith and trust in Jesus this morning. Our Father, oh, we just pray for your spirit to work, and we thank you for Lord Jesus. Uh, we thank you that you are the ruler of this world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.